Well, I just uh, wanted to get you back up to uh, uh, focus as far as where we're at in, in our by introduction in, in our study. It's been a couple of weeks since we met last with the meeting last week, uh, but we're sort of in this centered focus uh, following the salutations of a remembrance of certainly our, our great salvation that we have in, in chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2 of verse 10, and where we're at. And our focus, as what I started two weeks ago and will continue, is really a continuation of that objective today, is, is that, that we would worship God and rejoice because our salvation is secure in the work of His mercy. I truly believe that this was the focus that the Holy Spirit wanted for Peter to convey to these believers is this foundation. I gave you last time we met this overview of 1 Peter 3 to 9. And Mark, I drew this line uh, last, last time we met Mark, and so I'm covering above the line. And then Mark's going to launch into uh, starting next week with verse 6, and this we greatly rejoice. And this was this diagram that I showed of this entire chapter, not the chapter, but this section of it, because it is this focus on the greatness of salvation. And the way we we just looked at it briefly was taking and diagramming the verse, the verses that are in play here, as it focuses on similarities and connection points by way of review. And focusing on four key things throughout this particular passage. One is the greatness of mercy, that this salvation that we have is prompted by God's great mercy. It was accomplished through the new birth, which we'll again pick up this week, protected by the power of God, and then ultimately evidenced by faith, which is what's going to be at the center of what Mark's going to hit on uh, going forward. But I I showed this as a, a... a way for you as we'd study a passage to actually diagram a passage by simply just taking it, copying it, pasting it on a piece of paper and then just moving margins and things and just connecting the various aspects of the passage to give full meaning and content to where we're at. And so also, by quick review and, and connections before we get into our outline for today, is that First Peter, as we said last week, who was it written to? And we had looked at several different verses that supported that. To whom was First Peter written? Okay, Gentiles? Jews. So it was really both Jews and Gentiles. It was to believers. And the circumstances of the letter? Persecution. Persecution and suffering. And this is going to be this focus that when Mark launches into uh, verse 6, and it says, in this you rejoice, it's going to be a look back to the verses of this doxological start in this this salutation, that he's saying, well, what do we rejoice in amid trials and suffering? And so, the time. Let's get, again, the background. The time is about 67 AD, where we find Peter in a Roman jail, and he's awaiting his own trial and execution. Inside his prison cell, he, he pens this letter that we'll refer to as this radical hope. And what we're going to see as we study this, and it's literally the hope that Mark and I have, is that you and I, too, will recognize this great inheritance, this great value that we have in Jesus Christ that is available to every man and woman in Christ. And so the story of hope is this difference, and I believe it's what is literally the difference for Christians that we start to see that manifests itself in the outward appearance. Peter references in these opening verses of 1 Peter this living hope. And, and 
we're going to be able to take this living hope and then you transfer it into your home, into your workplace, into every interaction inside the church, and ultimately even through the, ch- the book studies, even through government <laughs> that we'll see. And so we pick up our study in verses 3 to 5 of chapter 1. So you want to open your Bibles, if you haven't, not there, as we begin to read chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And as you can see, just based on last time we met, we only got through first part of first, verse 3 because we're taking it literally the word by word and seeing the significance of that. So, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. If someone could start by reading that by introduction in our discussion. According to his boss to be bar protected by... Thanks, Mary. Peter begins this passage with this sweeping doxology. In this doxology, as we defined last time we met, was this word of praise to God. And it's really this praise unto the wonder of God's salvation. The Holy Spirit, through Peter, as he writes this, begins this letter with this joyous praise, inasmuch as the people that are reading his letter are amid suffering and persecution by Rome. And so the passage is truly, as we looked at that objective, it's a passage of worship to God. And if time permits at the end, you can write a prayer of praise literally from this doxology. It, it is so interesting to me is that Paul, Peter writes just as Paul does. Paul uses the same words of this blessing to God for the salvation that we have. The last time we met, we looked at the elements of the sovereign grace. We talked about true worship that would transcend the circumstances. We looked at Job chapter 1, verse 20, where again, amid circumstances, that there was ultimately a blessing and worship unto God. So true worship would transcend circumstances. We'll come back to a graphic. I did give you a copy of that from last time we met that ultimately represents hopeful of the fact that what he was trying to drive in these components in this doxology, Peter, was to encourage these Christians that were living in a hostile world to look past the temporal, <laughs> the temporal troubles, the temporal inconveniences, the temporal persecution, to ultimately rejoicing in their salvation. So, God is in the mercy business. He is the God of all mercies. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. It is accomplished through our new birth. Starting off where we left off in verses 3, 3b. He has caused us to be born again. This is the moment of our regeneration and our justification. Mark spent a great deal of time on this. This justification, which is this declaring the sinner just before God by graciously imputing Christ's righteousness on Him. What does hope mean? Hope means, we'll define it as confident optimism. And where does it come from? Psalm 43.5 just nails it. Where does hope come from? Simple. It comes from God. He is the source of hope. He, it comes from Him. Hope is a gift of grace. Hope is a gift of grace. What I wanted to do was to look at ways 
other things that we can focus on this hope. We started with the first couple, which was that hope represented this confident optimism that comes from God. It is a gift of grace. And I just these first couple of verses in here in 2 Thessalonians 2.16, it is a gift of grace. And I want to go through it. I'd like for you to some of you to help us to complete other adjectives that would describe what hope is. Can someone take Romans chapter 15, verse 4? Can someone take John chapter 11, verse 25? Romans 15 and 13. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. Romans 5, 3 and 4. And then finally, Psalm 146, 5. I thought we would do these together. So hope means confident optimism it comes from God. It is a gift of grace. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Can someone have that? Could read it, please. Okay, thank you. Hope is defined by Scripture. So clear in that, we see in that, hope is defined by Scripture. Without the clear and certain promises of the Word of God, believer has no basis for hope. Without the clear and certain promises of the Word of God, the believer has no basis for hope. When I think of hope, I think of the fact that sometimes in something, um, you know, like there's no uncertainty sometimes that goes with this. And what we're going to focus is on the fact that sometimes we look at hope until it becomes a reality and then it fades away. And so what this is, is the certainty of that hope that becomes such that it is even, yeah, not yet realized, but it is very, very real. So... That's the value that we see in the significance of Scripture, that it's very clear in the certainty of God's promises. Romans, excuse me, John 11, 25. Why is it a living hope? Because it's secured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is it a living hope? It's in the resurrection of Christ, who is a race God. Amen to that, huh? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. He li- we live. A living hope that is confirmed by Romans 15, 13. Someone have that? The confirmation, what, what Anne read there, is, is that it is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Hope is defined by Scripture. It's defined by the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And it's a living hope is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. Have that one? I have some of these if you don't have it yet. When we, we hear about the what helmet, it's really tied to that salvation. And so what the significance of this is that we look at that, and I think of even then moving to Ephesians 6, where we see this armor of God, a living hope that defends against Satan. Why is it a living hope? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it's, it's confirmed by the Holy Spirit. And because it defends against it. It is the helmet of our salvation. Number seven. Romans 5, 3 and 4. No. Mark's going to hit on this, but it's a living hope because it's a living hope that is confirmed through, confirmed through trials. And lastly, Psalm 146, 5. What does it produce? The living hope. It's joy. Our living hope that produces a joy. We've talked about this sovereign joy. And when you look at um, this, these opening passages, I want to take a second because there is this, these prepositions that they tie together. So I'm just going to read it to you this way and I'm going to emphasize the, 
the preposition, if this sounds right. God has caused us to be born, caused us to a living hope. In other words, when he goes according to his great mercy, this two, the prepositions that I'll focus on, and I'm just going to, let me just read again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us to, there's the preposition, a living hope, through the next preposition, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and then to an inheritance. Now, I wanted to take the first two verses that Mark looked at, the first couple weeks, the beginning of salutation, to the key things of these verses of 3 and 4. And all I want to do is I just took some of these key words, and I want you to see the parallel ideas that we see in this. In other words, when you read them together, much like this mapping of it, in that in verse uh, verses 1, 1b, and 2, and you can look at your Bible, that it's blank according to the knowledge, foreknowledge of God, which is what? In your Bible there. We are? We are chosen. Okay? We are chosen. Or you may, your version may say elect. We are chosen or elect. And so you are the called out ones. You are chosen by God. Why were you chosen? According to His... Great mercy. You were chosen because He is merciful. See that connection? You were chosen because he, God is merciful. That's it. Period. Nothing else. Verse 1, verse 2b. With the sanctification of the, of the Spirit. And as a result of that, has caused us to be born again. We are born of God. Sanctification of the Spirit has caused us to be born again. Verse Chapter 1, verse 2c. For the, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood to a living hope is not, is not, we are set apart from sin to God in order to obey Jesus Christ. Right? Why? As an eternal hope. As an eternal hope or future reality through Jesus Christ. Now, it says, may grace and peace be... It says multiplied. What is that word? When you think of multiplied, what is it? Yes, Anne. I like... No words. This is how Anne described it. It is an abundance that we see in the connection of this multiplied to you. It's to an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance is abundant. And you see these connection points. So when you just step back and you look at, I just don't want you to look at separation to this. Because the significance of Peter's salutation of calling out to these believers is now seeing these parallel ideas in this doxology of praise. Pretty. Verse 4. To an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away. Uh, what does this word inheritance uh, mean to you? That mean? Just some thoughts. Okay, something that's given to you? Gift? Okay, passed down. Anybody inherit anything in here? You want to share? Pardon? It's an important point, Carla. You don't work for it. Some people think that if I'm really good to my grandpa, you know, when he does pass on, he'll, I'll be really nice to him. So... It's not that the case. It is a gift. And what we're going to talk about is the significance of the giver of that gift. 
Well, in the Old Testament, the concept of inheritance, and I've listed a couple passages there, but you can, you can go through these just to kind of save time. It Really, the Old Testament concept of, it, of the word inheritance really related to land uh, for the most part. And some of the key passages that you can look at in Numbers 18 and also in Numbers, uh, add to your, if you're making a note there, Numbers 26, verses 54 and 56, and then, of course, in Joshua 13. But the, certainly, the, I would say that whether it was primarily the Jewish believers that were there listening there as part of the, you know, the, the recipients of this letter, they would understand the concept of inheritance being specifically related to the land. And in those, those verses, this was really where they were directed to divide the land up amongst Israel. And, of course, with the exception of the Levites, which was they were not given the land, and they were obviously Levites who they had Yahweh in Scripture alone as really their inheritance. And so there's some interesting study about that. It's important to understand that because when the Holy Spirit or Peter would use this word of inheritance, it has a meaning of some possession that would, they would have that would literally be tangible to them. Okay? Now, to receive an inheritance, what do you have to be? What's the word? Okay, a beneficiary? From the form of the word, it would be within it is that you, you're an heir. Okay? You're an heir, that you would, how we would describe that. So biblically, how do you become an heir? There's, within, the, within the Bible, when you see this word inheritance, there's two ways that you become an heir. Birthright, through, right, through the family, literally, and... Adoption, okay? And all of us in this room are heirs as by adoption. Okay, I've got some great passages that we'll look at that will be significant here. So, according to Acts 20, 32, and 26, 18, who inherits? It's heirs, but it would be believers in this particular one. Believers. We are heirs who receive the inheritance on the basis of mercy and grace. And we are, as you had answered, we are adopted. We're adopted as children, co-heirs with the Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, there's one passage I would just want to go to, and let's take a look at Romans. Romans chapter 8. Let's turn to that one. That really could give you a verse to tie this one out pretty to support this. Someone has Romans chapter 8. I'd like you to read verses 16 to 18 if you could share with us. And Mark, since it's so close in your heart, why don't you read Hebrews 1 2? <laughs> so I could ask you to do that one. I know you got that one down. Okay, Mark chapter 1, verse 2. In the last days, God has spoken to us. So in, in this, we see clearly that as believers, we're here. Christ is heir to all things, Hebrews 1 2. All things. And, and, and I want to get to this, to this Romans chapter 8. The Spirit of self bears witness with, with our spirit that we are children of God. He goes back to the, to the born again part of the, of the passage that we are born of God. That if children, then heirs. There's the adoption. And if indeed we... Uh, and joint heirs with Christ. And so... In Galatians 3.8, it is based on promise. And in Colossians 3.24, it comes from the Lord. It's based on promise. comes from the Lord. Okay, what is? What is the specific inheritance 
that we can focus on? What is the significance of the inheritance? Eternal life. What is it's in Matthew chapter 25, verses in verse 34. I already have that. I'll read it. Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Another passage like that is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Ephesians 5, 5. Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. The inheritance that we have as a result of the new birth is we inherit the kingdom. The writer of Hebrews has a ton to say about this topic. In a, actually, in, in chapter 9, verse 15, it says that it is eternal life. It is eternal life. Hebrews 6, verse 12. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those through faith and patience inherit the promises. It is the promises. The inheritance is the kingdom. It is eternal life. It is God's promises. It is our salvation. Chapter 1, verse 14 of Hebrews. They are not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. Peter writes, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It is God's protection of His promises. We will receive the unfading crown of glory. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, I also have that verse, says, In the future there is laid up for me this crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. You know, when we think about the inheritance that we receive through Jesus Christ, as an heir to this, we receive the kingdom, eternal life, God's promises, salvation, God's protection of His promises, and so much more that yet are not even described. So what is the value? What is the value of the inheritance? The value of the inheritance is sometimes we focus a little bit on the worth of the one who gives it. You know, if I, if, if I inherited all the possessions of a pauper, what would I receive? Rags and riches. From his perspective, probably literally rags. But riches to him, that's all he would have. And so the, the focus of this is, is that the one, capital O and E, what is the worth of the one that is giving you the inheritance? Mark chapter 8, verse 36 comes to mind when I ask that question as far as what is the worth of the one who gives it. You remember in that, Jesus said, for what will a, man, a profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul. In other words, what is? And in this situation, this is this ultimate inheritance that we have of eternal life. Believers' inheritance is significant. Peter goes on and he uses three words, the Holy Spirit through Peter uses three adjectives to describe this inheritance. Okay? Now, I need a volunteer to read the, the words in blue, please. Anyone? Anyone? 
It, uh, actually, the three words, you, you have the answers. You know what the English words are those. Uh, but I listed this up here because there is something that's interesting about this is that there's some alliteration. You know what alliteration means? Lori always speaks in alliteration. She's a, very, she's a rhymer, you know. She, it's, in this case, the significance of this is that there's, there are three A's that go in there. And so it would, be very, it would flow very quickly, in other words, off of one tongue. And it, sometimes I look at it from um, the value of alliteration is that I can remember things real easily. And so, unfortunately, when you translate it to English, it's not quite that Similar. So in the first one is the first Greek word that we have there is in the adjective that he describes inheritance is the word imperishable. It also means, if you in your version, it might say incorruptible. And so the way that you would break that word down is you would say, if you get rid of the prefix of that, the in or the un, it would be destruction or destroyed or corrupt. So to have it to be in or un, in, imperishable or incorruptible, simply would mean quite the opposite of that. And this is really, in 1 Corinthians 9.25, this is when we see these futures award. It talks about an imperishable crown. So it is the inheritance, first word, it is an inheritance that cannot be destroyed or corrupted. Does that make sense? It cannot be destroyed or corrupted in any way. It is incorruptible, imperishable. A word that I think of is like this word is called impervious. An impervious would be is that you couldn't get through this floor. It's it's hard, concrete. It's there. You just can't get through it. Okay. The second word, the Greek word, it means undefiled in Scripture. There, the nature of that inheritance is imperishable. The second one is that it's undefiled. And in this term, in a religious sense, simply just means pure. It's the purity of this inheritance. So if you think about it, is that this inheritance that we receive through Jesus Christ as an heir is imperishable. It is not, can never be destroyed, and it's perfect. It is pure. This is an interesting word, and I don't cannot even take a shot at pronouncing the Greek in here. Anyone knows the Greek in here? Any Greek students in here? Okay, well, I'm not going to do it. But I listed it there just because of the alliteration. But what the, the significance, interesting, of this second world, undefiled and pure, it was a word that was used to describe a mineral of sort that was used in like fire-resistant cloth. And it was interesting is, is that back then, in that time, is that the Romans would use this Mineral that they would soak the sackcloth that they would wrap like a body in, in this mineral. And it was like a fire retardant, like almost like asbestos. And so, the, think about the significance. That's how they captured, when they would burn a body, they'd capture the ashes. It was within this, it's like a fire retardant. So this is this kind of the concept in here. So it kind of paints a, an interesting picture in your head, doesn't it, of how it would work. And so the nature of this inheritance is such that it is fire, it's fireproof, almost. It's very pure, it's cloth, and it's flame. The third one is that it will not fade. It's unfading is the term, is what it means. And the word in the Greek, and actually... 
Peter will use it again in chapter 5, verse 4, where he describes that when the chief shepherd appears in chapter 5, verse 4, he will receive an unfading crown of glory. So it will not fade away. And it's, it's actually a term um, that means that it, like it will not die. And it is, it's used of a term of a flower. You know, right now people are getting fresh flowers and you're putting them in your vases and you're putting them in your home. But what's going to happen within a matter of a week or a couple of weeks is that they're going to fade over, fade, and then they're going to pass out. And this has this picture from a botanical standpoint as a term that we refer to this like plastic flower almost, that it's always there. Now, let's find an application to this. And I've got a personal application I've got to share. Because the significance of this inheritance, this nature of being unfading. Remember I said that often hope is this reality, hope, and yet there's some uncertainty to that. And it's not real clear sometimes. And until it becomes a reality, then it's real, and then it, we, we lose it. And so it becomes. And now, have you ever had those those dreams of something that you hope for or you long for the past of some sort and you have this fading dream of it. And I'm remembered of this because it is simply those dreams will fade away over time. And of course, you know, Lori and I are kind of going through a, we, you know, we're celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary and praise God for that. And yet through this, it's been a time of just reflection is that we constantly just remember. And we go back and we just think about some of the great things together. So in, in that, you always will take us back to certain times. And this last week, Lori and I connected with um, one of my, my college roommates. That, uh, you know, we, he was my roommate during my last couple of years of college. And it was just a time of remembering the dreams. And it was, our discussion was like, Though, well, you know, do you remember this? And you go back. And sometimes it's a little bit unclear, isn't it? Well, I pulled out, just to kind of give you another example of what this term means, is that God's inheritance is unfading, unlike my dreams. You know, I, I went back and, you know, I pulled out of my drawer still. You know, I have, I have my... This was my, my senior year in college. You know, this is my, my wrestling. I uh, went to nationals my senior year at the Coast Guard Academy because our friend that we went to, uh, we had dinner with, his son is at the Coast Guard Academy. You know, so I pull out, you know, I remember this <laughs> 1980. You can't see it because it is faded. It's all faded in there. But great memories, great dream at the time I had there that I was, you know, could to do so much in there. That same year, I relate to this one here, and I go back to, oh, I used to love to run. I used to love run. 1980, believe that or not. <laughs> Still have it. Still have it. But it was, I mean, look at the back. It is faded in here. These are just simple illustrations of the fact that sometimes we, we find ourselves going back and we just are thinking of these faded dreams. And we're here to focus on the fact that our inheritance never fades. It's brand new. Always. It's fire retardant. It's made of us. It's just, it's perfect. 
And so this, these descriptions of this really are significant that we have here. Now, I want to go back to First Peter in here. So we've got these three descriptions that he goes through. He says that to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. We went out to dinner last night with my mom and dad. And, you know, I, we're, we're kind of driving a little bit of a distance. And so I wanted to make sure that when we go out to dinner, at around dinner time, that we have a, a reservation. Everyone, You guys do that, right? We all make reservations. Why do you make reservations? Tell me. Ever had a reservation that didn't work out? Anyone got a story to tell on that? Several years ago, Lori and I went to San Francisco. I had planned this vacation. This was my turn to plan it from start to finish. And, you know, I had every detail just worked out perfectly. So we go into San Francisco and we go into the hotel, you know, kind of like, ah, take care of it, hon. You know, got a reservation. You just enjoy it. So I walk in there and, of course, I said, you know, reservation for Tories, please. And he's going through, uh, no, don't have that. I'm going, yeah, you do. It's there. It's there. Go check it. No, no, sorry, sir. I have no reservation for Tories. I said, I have a confirmation number. He says, well, can I see that, sir? So I gave him the confirmation number. So he pulls it up and he goes, well, he says, you have a reservation, all right. I said, and? He says, for tomorrow. (laughs) I said, tomorrow? He says, well, who made your reservations? I said, well... Did the travel agent make that? I said, uh, no, I did. He said, well, sir, here it is. I made it for the wrong day. You know what? God is the one that makes our reservations. <laughs> he doesn't mess up. It is reserved in heaven for you. And God is guarding our inheritance. Now, it's interesting is, is that this term of guarding has two meanings to it. If you think about this word guarding. Okay, I'm going to use the illustration of this door. Okay, there's two ways to guard this door, isn't there? Okay, what would be the two ways to guard the door? One is that I would I would stand guard outside. The other way would be to stand inside. And in the significance of that guarding is that when when I guard on the outside, what is my purpose in guarding? Not letting something in. When I'm on the inside is, I'm <laughs> sorry, you cannot get out this way. That is this meaning of this word of guarding. And you have words that would be similar to that, which would be kept or keeping. That's what this simply just means. A great passage is in John 17, verses 11 and, um, and 12. It says, Holy Father, keep them. Keep them. This is this word. It's like guard them or keep them. Keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, here it is, I was keeping them. It's the same word. In thy name which thou hast given me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them perished. Absolutely. But Jesus would describe himself as the good shepherd. And, and that's sometimes what I want you to, to focus on is the fact is, is that God has got both sides of the door. He, there is this aspect of it that I, I thought I would just focus on because when we look at 
our, this preservation of you know ultimately our salvation is that when God is in the one that's doing the reserving, when God is doing the, the keeping and the protecting and the guarding, it's significant. As our inheritance, spiritual life is guarded, so too is our person, the physical life. I think there's some great passages in Scripture that help us to focus specifically on this guarding of the believer, physically. Not only spiritually, but also physically. Any thoughts, comments on that part, Mark? Uh, you know, that's, you know, that's a great point, Mark. When, when you go back to literally those, those adjectives that describe that inheritance, it applies to you and I as believers. I, I always, always followed up Jim's message to my kids to say, "Well, now remember, it doesn't mean that you're gonna, you're still gonna go crazy and drive 100 miles an hour, you know, because you think you're indestructible." But yet, as the believer, that's his God's. And certainly, there are circumstances that come with that. But this is again this great blessing that we have in, in our inheritance. So it's God's omnipotence that continuously protects God's believers, God's elect, God's chosen. So it's the power of God that is continuously at work in here that is protecting us through faith. And it is a saving faith that perseveres by nature of God's preservation. We close out. It's, he goes on and he writes, he says that we are kept by the power of God. We are guarded by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The three aspects of salvation in Scripture that Mark hit on actually in the first week, it's the justification where we're saved from the penalty of sin, the sanctification, saved from the power of sin, and then lastly, glorification. They're saved from the presence of sin. Prepositions again that are noteworthy, that we are kept by power through. Kept through for salvation. Kept through faith for salvation. When you link those prepositions, you can see it has significance that go with that. And so a couple weeks ago is that we looked at where these believers were. What, is, what was their state of mind? And to kind of just tee up a little bit about what Mark is going to be focusing on with respect to these, is that we talked about salvation's vantage point. And the circumstances, the suffering that these believers, these Jews and Gentiles that were experiencing, is that they were, they were challenged in being able to view their, their salvation. The sovereign joy in their, in their salvation was clouded. It was somewhat faded, I guess is the picture that I would use in today's term. And the reversal is really what Peter was doing is to say, look, in this doxological praise of worship, he is saying, the greatness of your salvation, which was prompted by God's mercy, it was accomplished through the birth, protected by God's power, and it will be evidenced by the preserving faith in verses 6 and following. So therefore, by having that as the foundation, and as that, this is this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Is therefore, circumstances and suffering are just a dotted line around. They're real. It's a hard figure. They, they exist. 
but it's the perspective that we have. So as we started in this objective, is that this worship is when our, our mind can fully apprehend the truths of this little passage in 3 to 5. It kicks in. It kicks into your heart and it begins to manifest itself in brokenness, joy, sovereign joy, and gratitude. That's when you can say, bless be God. Oh, bless God. Praise Him. And so these realities that have led us in this little passage to, into worship is God's great mercy, God's work of new birth, His work of raising Jesus from the dead, and God's promise of inheritance, and God's work of keeping our inheritance. The way I wanted to close this is a little bit different today. Is that you, you looked at some, some interesting questions at the beginning. You have, we've focused on these passages into a significant level of depth of ultimately this inheritance that we have, these truths that frankly are worth celebrating. The hope, the living hope that we have. And I thought what we would do is that we would close together in prayer by you writing, just taking any one of these five on your piece of paper anywhere there, and I want you to write a prayer of praise and worship to God that even today, or the last times we've met, has come into a greater significance intellectually and into the heart. Just write something down. And then what I'm going to do, I'm going to open our time in prayer. And I want just any of you, just go ahead and just praise God in that. And Mark, if I could ask you to close our time together that way, is what does this mean? You see... He was writing to these believers, but it's you and I too. And so as we emphasize so much is that this being the, the, the foundation of it, is that we can't have a takeaway without having these personal aspects of this passage. Take a second and just jot down a couple words of praise that you would like to offer up in a corporate prayer as we close. Take a couple of minutes. Okay, let me open in prayer and then uh, let's pray together. Um, as we close our time and, and take a few minutes here and share your praises as you feel led as a key takeaway from even what we've talked about today. Let's pray. Father, blessed be uh, your name. Father, we just uh, praise you. We honor you. Father, that you would be glorified. Father, we thank you for this time of sharing in your word Father, we just worship You through it. Father, we have just come through this little passage, just these opening five verses. Father, we just see the reality, Father, of the greatness of Your mercy. Father, the beauty in these words that uh, just serve as such a foundation to our faith. Father, our hearts uh, just uh, praise You. Father, that we would even use this a uh, little passage here as just a, a, a framework and a template to our our worship and our prayer life to you, Father. It just changes so much, Father. I just think about these disciples and I think of Peter, Father. No wonder, no wonder, this man changed because of what he fully saw, and understood in the greatness of your mercy and, and love for him.
God, I thank you for causing us to be born again. Uh, Father, you're just giving us new being, uh, new life. Father, thank you for allowing us, to, by your grace and your mercy, to be heirs. Amen.